Wasn't expecting enough to get, get up so quick. That's great. Thanks for that, Tim. Thanks for that lovely. That's one of the nicest introductions I've ever had. I'll uh, don't forget to send the bank details. I'll fix you up for it later. That was that was great. Um, yes, yeah, Tim said. Yes, yeah, so I'm up from Alpha Cruises. Been teaching all week, which has been great. Um, Dwayne, our campus director, said to me at the start when we were planning this week. Um, he said, "Oh, there's an opportunity to preach in John Hunt's church, um, but it'll just be the weekend after the class." And I thought, "Oh." oh. I want to get back and see the family, but I want to be here as well. What do I do? So we could have compromised, and I've actually been able to bring my wife up. She met me up here on Friday, which has been fantastic. So we spent yesterday hanging out in Brisbane. Can we just say, um, from, from both of us, we love your winters. This is fantastic. It's so much better than snow. So thank you for your winters, if nothing else. It's been a really, really good time. Um, so we, yeah, we had a really great time, but I must say we are looking forward to getting back to see the kids. I particularly am. I haven't seen them since last Saturday, and to watch the state of origin with people that like the colour blue. So, <laughs> um, yes. So I'll be, I'll be. Unfortunately, I have to leave sort of straight after the message. Um, I'll go I'm going over to your other, your other campus. So you don't get the opportunity to bag me out and tell me how great the Queensland team is. So I'm sorry that you'll miss that opportunity. Um, that was strategic. <laughs> Um, very good. So let me, let's just jump straight into it. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go straight to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I believe the passages will be up on the screen. I want to start by asking a, a simple question. It's a rhetorical question. You don't have to yell out the answer. I've had to sort of explain that to the class, really, particularly to Tim. He just likes to, yeah, but this and this. It's cool, Tim. You're right, but just, just let me say that because that's my job. Um, just saying he's got all the good answers, he's a good guy. My question is this, if you had to write your ministry CV, what would you put on it? Somebody said to you, what is it about you that qualifies you as a minister of the gospel? Notice I say minister, not Christian, because we're all ministers of the gospel in whatever capacity we find ourselves. If you had to list in some sort of CV form everything that you consider makes you a minister, what would you put? What do you think that really that Jesus is looking at and saying, ah, that's what I'm really looking for? Because this is the question that the Corinthians were asking Paul. By the time of 2 Corinthians, he'd been in relationship with this church for about five or six years, and just before this, about a year before this letter was written, there was a massive falling out between Paul and the church. And the falling out was so bad that some of the people within the church had actually gone and replaced him with new apostles. They called themselves super apostles, and literally that was the name they gave us, super apostles, like the big S on the front underwear outside the togas, like this, the whole thing, right? These were, as far as they were concerned, they were the bee's knees of Christian ministry. Paul's attitude, Paul's understanding of it is a little bit different. He thinks they're servants of Satan. So we've got a bit of a conflicting notion of, of how great these men actually were. But the Corinthians are saying to Paul, we've got super apostles. You're like a lowly, normal apostle. So now, you know, you seem to be thinking you're something fantastic. Why would we have you back when we have super apostles? What is it about you, Paul? What is your CV? 
Now, the thing about Paul is he wants nothing to do with this. Paul wants absolutely nothing to do with this sort of boasting. It's just, for him, this is anathema. This is about as bad as it gets. But he realizes that for these few people in his church that are now have been won over to this new super apostle team, he realizes that he has to give them something. He has to give them some sort of sense of what he considers about his ministry that makes him an apostle of Christ. And so he doesn't want to do this. He's very clear about this. He does not want to do this, and which is why he saves it to the very, very end of the letter. All of these chapters going before, this is just like, do I have to do this? And he realizes he gets to a point in the letter where he says, you know what, I just, this is the only way I'm going to win over the rest of you. And so very, very, very begrudgingly, he gives them what they want, but not what they expect. And this is where it gets fun. So 2 Corinthians 11, we'll pick it up from verse 16. He says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. He says, all right, if we're just going to do this, understand that this is a foolish thing, but apparently it takes one to know one, so I guess that's the only way we're going to have any rapport here. But, but let's be really clear about this. I'm not speaking as the Lord would. Holy Spirit, he just left the room. He's off having a coffee. He wants nothing to do with this. This is just between us now. This is how, this is how stupid this thing is. But apparently, it takes one to know one, so therefore I need to play the fool in order to be able to communicate with you. So here's me playing the fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you were so wise. Paul, Paul has this sarcasm dial, and he's got it wound up to 10 at this point. Okay, this is, there's a lot of sarcasm going on in here. So don't ever, don't sort of think the sarcasm is not a good part of preaching. It, it can be in, in good dosage. <laughs> he says, in fact, you even put up with any who enslave you or exploit you or take advantage of you or push themselves forward and slap you in the face. To my shame, I admit, we were too weak for that. He says, so you've got these super apostles, and they've come into your town, they've come into your church, and they're, they're living off your resources. They're living in your house, they're eating your food, they're taking all of your support, and they're treating it as if somehow they're doing you the honor of taking your stuff. Now, in that culture, that's pretty standard. You, you're a traveling teacher, you go into a place, I mean, Jesus sends the, t- the 12 out two by two, and he says, when you get into a town, go and stay with somebody and, and be supported by them. That's just pretty normal. But what Paul's saying here is that what these guys are doing is abusing you, because what you're getting in return is a false gospel. What these people are, in Paul's words, are parasites. They've come into your house... They're presuming to, take your, to, to, to bless you in return for your, for your goods, but actually what they are are parasites. They're sucking the very life out of you, and you're paying them for the privilege. Paul says, now, look, apparently that's what you want. You want an apostle that can abuse you. You want a, an apostle that will slap you in the face and use all your resources. I, 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 get, I guess that's what you want. I'm so sorry, I, we were too weak for that. You know, we just thought maybe we could bless you instead. Maybe we could serve you. 
Maybe we could give the resources and the blessing as well. But that's not what you're looking for, of course. You wanted a parasite. I'm so sorry. We weren't as strong as these super apostles. We were too weak to to be so abusive. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He found an 11 ranking on the sarcasm dial right about there. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. Let's be clear about this, Corinthians. God's having coffee off somewhere else. This is just us talking. I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they ethnically pure Jewish ministers? So am I. Got the circumcision to prove it. He says, are they Christians? He says, I'm a better one. He says, I'm out of my mind to speak like this, but I'm actually a better Christian. Now, this is Paul, who we know at the same, in the same breath will say that he's the chief of all sinners, that he's the least of all the apostles. This same Paul now saying to these Corinthians, are they Christians? I'm a better one. Now, okay, just, just imagine Tim's fantastic introduction, and I get up and go, yep, everything Tim said is true and more. I am that good. <laughs> I've got this level of Christianity that just puts every one of you to shame. Forget about all the titles, just my relationship with God is so superior to all of yours. Now, imagine if I'd said that when I first got up here. If you were still listening to me at this point, you deserve whatever's coming next. Because that just doesn't fly. So how could Paul get away with it? Well, it's pretty easy. Because he's been compared to servants of Satan. Now, the last time I checked, you can't be a servant of Satan and a Christian at the same time. I don't know, maybe it's different in Queensland? I I had to get you back for that, just at least once. That's the last... All right, that's all, that's all. No more Queensland jokes. You are superior, I will say that. Because we've had so many friends that have moved from Sydney up to Brisbane... And I've not met anyone that's moved from Brisbane back to Sydney. So there's something in that. Paul's been compared to what he calls servants of Satan. So the last time I checked, you can't be a servant of Satan and a Christian at the same time. So to be a servant of Satan is to not be a Christian. So any Christian is a better Christian than the servant of Satan. Would you agree? Like, this is just a common sense thing to say, right? They're not even Christians, so even if I was just a half-hearted Christian, I'm still a better Christian than the servant of Satan. So it's kind of like a statement of logic here. It's not really a boast. It's kind of pointing out the obvious. Now, that's not how they would have heard it. They would have heard, finally, he's going to boast. They wouldn't have heard, oh, gee, that's a bit pretentious, Paul. No, they would have thought, oh, finally... Here is what we we came to hear. We want to hear what you're about, Paul. We want the list of all the great stuff that you've done. Paul says, all right. All right, you've pushed me to it. What makes me a better Christian, Paul says? What makes me a better minister than the servants of Satan? Well, possessing the Holy Spirit for a start, but you know, if we're going to go into a bit more detail, what would that look like? He says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. And I imagine at this point you could hear a pin drop in the room. 
That's not what we came to hear, Paul. We want to hear about the miracles. We want to hear about the healings and all the great things that you've achieved, all the churches. No, no, no. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that? Oh, I think I've misunderstood the game. Oh, I, I'm, I thought you meant the stuff that actually makes me look like Christ on the cross. Oh, oh I blew the game. Sorry, guys. Oh, well, I've started now. We may as well finish it. No, no, it's all right, Paul. No, no, no. You, you asked for this. Yeah, you wanted this, so here it is. He says, five times I was flogged by the Jews. I was given from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Now, I do this survey everywhere I go, every time I mention this passage. Just a quick survey. This is not a rhetorical question. I'd like to see some hands. How many of you have ever heard it said that the reason why they didn't flog a person any more than 40 times is because if you flog a person more than 40 times, it will kill you? Who's, who's heard that? It's still, it's really interesting. I don't know who started that. I'd love to meet that person and just say, don't, please stop that. Wouldn't basic physiology say that it depends on how big the person is? I imagine, right, right now, if I was to get a big Tongan rugby player up here and flog that guy 40 times, he'd just go, oh, that was a great back rub, thanks for that, and go about his merry way. If you were to flog me four times, I'd probably drop dead. I mean, is there like a switch in the body that says, oh, you're at 39, do it again and I'm going to die. Oh, you did it. Now I'm dead. This comes back to Deuteronomy 25.2. In Deuteronomy 25.2, it talks about the way in which you're going to punish a person. And it says there, you do not flog a person any more than 40 times because in doing so, you'll bring shame on the person and bring shame on yourself. It was a way of limiting corporal punishment because in the Jewish judicial system, they were more about mercy than they were about punishing. They would do everything to get you off being punished because they were more concerned with you coming back to a relationship with God rather than being punished. And so when you come to the first century where this punishment is being applied in the synagogues because the synagogue was the local government house for the Jewish community in every city. That's where you would find this punishment. Now, that punishment was, that sort of capital punishment was the, was the worst form of punishment you could possibly receive, and it was reserved really only for blasphemy. You know, the whole number one command, no gods before me, all of that. And so what the Jews would do is they'd say, all right, look, we've charged you with blasphemy, you have two choices. We can give you the 40 lashes minus one, or we can excommunicate you from the synagogue. It's your choice. Now, what would happen at that point if you were going to be flogged is that the, the executioner, without, without killing you, but the one that was going to bring the punishment, would weigh you up and look, would look at your physique and determine how many lashes you could probably handle. So if you're a very small person, they'd only give you a few lashes because it wasn't about inflicting punishment so much as it was making a point. Don't do that again. And what they whip you with was a, a big leather strap that would be rolled over twice and they would hit you with that. The fact that on every occasion Paul got the full 39 would suggest to us that he was actually a big guy. Whoever the executioner was looked at him and said, you can take the full punishment, you'll be able to handle it. More importantly, it tells us that on five different occasions, Paul was given the opportunity to be excommunicated. 
Instead, he took the flogging. Because if he took the flogging, if he took the excommunication, he can't come back next Saturday and keep preaching Jesus. Or whenever he's back healed up, because here's the other point. Forty lashes with a double-thonged whip on five different occasions. We're talking upwards of 200 hits, but 400 lashes. What's that going to do to your back? I mean, I reckon by the last time, they're just hitting scar tissue. What does that do for the flesh on your back when you have to wake up on a cold morning and you've just, you, you, you'd be just tight with your skin would be... He says to the Galatians at one point, I bear the marks of Christ on my back, on my body. He literally bore the marks of Christ on his body. You could see on Paul's body his ministry. He says, three times I was, I was beaten with rods. That's the Roman punishment. Wherever a Roman governor would travel, they would be, they'd be accompanied with, a, with an official who was called a lictor, L-I-C-T-O-R, lictor. And this person's job was to inflict whatever punishment had been determined. There it is, on the spot, you're punished, let's get on with life. And so what this person would carry with them was what was called a fasces, F-A-S-C-E-S, fasces. We're going to word fascism from, which means authoritarian rule. And what it was was a bundle of rods. Now, the Romans didn't have any qualms whatsoever about how many times they hit you. They just beat you until their arms were tired. On top of these 400 lashes, that's already scar tissue. Now, let's put that into a modern perspective. If... I think if any of us had been flogged even once for the sake of the gospel, imagine we're off some mission field somewhere, we're flogged for the sake of the gospel, we'd go to hospital, before we even got out of hospital, we'd have the book deal signed, then we'd have the the speaking circuit all lined up because we'd be out there preaching about this horrific day that we suffered a flogging for the name of Christ. Paul gets flogged and he's like, oh, it's Tuesday again. Oh, gee, that that week went quick. I mean, this was just a day in the life. But all of that, I mean, what does that do to your physique? I mean, I, I, I mean I've, I've been flicked with a wet tea towel. I don't know how much that hurts. But the pain's gone in five minutes. It doesn't leave a scar. Paul says, that was just the floggings. He goes, once I was stoned. Now, this wasn't Paul's, you know, time back in the 60s when he was experimenting and he was... <laughs> trying alternative lifestyles. No, 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 this is when they actually threw rocks at him to kill him. We read about this in Acts 14. They stoned him and then they left him assuming he was dead. You know why they assumed he was dead? Because he was dead. Because you don't get rocks pelted at your head and not die from it. But the process of stoning was, was fairly, fairly regimented, really. What they would do is they'd take you up to, the, to a high point, maybe two stories, so probably imagine something about that height, in fact. High enough that it would probably kill you, but not that they're throwing you off some lookout. But high, maybe sort of that sort of height. And the idea was they'd throw you off and the, the, the fall was supposed to kill you. If it didn't, the next step was to get a big rock and drop it on your chest. And if that didn't do the job, then they would pelt you with stones. But they were going to get you dead. That was the goal. You remember when Jesus was preaching in the synagogue in Luke 
and they took him to a high place to throw him off. That city that he was in wasn't like the Blue Mountains where there's lookouts everywhere. and all. It was, it was a really flat area. The highest point would have only been maybe the height of this roof. They were going to stone him to death. That was the starting of the process. And Jesus is like, yeah, not today, boys. I'm out of here. Here's my question. What does that do to your ribcage? What does it do to your skull? I mean, at the worst, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a bit of brain damage. Because they were going to kill him. They thought he was... It, it's a funny story. Yeah, well, it's not really, because he died. But anyway, the believers came around and prayed for him, and he was revived. Now, I mean, look, this is just where I use a bit of creative imagination. It's not in the Bible. I don't know if it's true or not, but it works for me. Imagine that, right? So now Paul, he's been stoned to death, and he's, he's about to enter into his glory, right? I mean... There's the pearly gates, there's Jesus, and it's like finally no more flog-ins, no more being stoned to death, no more being chased out of cities. Finally, he comes into his glory, but then he starts to feel himself being pulled back, and he turns around and he realizes they're praying, and he says, stop praying! <laughs> and then they bring him back, and he's like, Paul, you're alive! And they're like, yeah, thanks, you mongrels, yeah. <laughs> Once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Three times he reenacted the last scene of Titanic. Seriously, by the third time, you must be looking up at Jesus going, seriously, we've got nothing new here? Three times? Like, can we be original? Like, I mean, the floggings, yeah, but now, come on, Jesus, come up with something new, man. It's getting a bit boring. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. <gasps> We've got this idea in ministry where we think that the pinnacle of ministry is that we're traveling around the world, preaching at all the places. You know, we see these TV ministers and we think that's what it should look like. I remember I was at a state conference a few years back and um, the, the state director gets up and he welcomes everybody the first night of the meeting. And he says, I'm just letting everybody know I just flew in from Perth. And we're like, okay, are you jet lagged or something? Is that, what's your point? And he says, oh, isn't that what I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed, am I supposed to get up here and tell you where I just flew in from? Oh, I see what you did there. All right, that's really funny. He was a pretty funny guy. It was a good joke. Problem was the keynote speaker for the week wasn't there that night. So he gets up the next night, and he says, uh, just flew in from the UK. And couldn't work out why everybody in the room completely lost it. It was just the funniest thing. Well, anyway, I thought it was funny. He says, I've labored and toiled, and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. We think ministry is some sort of five-star lifestyle. Best hotels, limousines, private jets. Paul says, oh, I've traveled all around the world. Not necessarily because I wanted to, because every time I get to a city, they chase me out with pitchforks. And then I go to the next city, and then they do the same thing again. It's kind of my life. And when I get there, I've got nothing, because, you know, I've got nothing. And so most of the time I find myself sleeping wherever I can find a place to lay down. Paul says, yeah, that's kind of the life that 
I call ministry. He says, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. He says, you know, forget all the floggings, forget all that stuff. You know the thing that really kills me? He says, my churches. Because I can't get to them. I can't be with them. Back before text messaging, you, you use letters, these old-fashioned ways of communicating, and it takes months and months to communicate with somebody on the next continent. Now, you've been around church for long enough to know that whatever starts as an argument on a Sunday morning is usually a church split by a Sunday night. So when Paul hears about a problem, it's been months since that letter came to him, and it's going to be another month, few months before he can get a response to them. And in the meantime, all he's got is this anxiety of not being able to get there and fix it. Paul says, you know what, I'd rather they do Jesus do all of it to me so that at least you guys can be safe. Is because that's the thing that really kills me. More than that, who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Did you think you got temptation? We get this image of Paul that he was some spiritual being with a halo that floated through the world. That was just... You know, his very essence, his very B.O. would raise the dead. He just, he didn't have a bad day, that it was just his perfect alignment with God. No, he was a human being who struggled with temptation like everyone else. And, he, and here's the thing. This, this is the first generation of Christians, and Paul has been called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He's going to spearhead this gospel message to the whole Gentile world. You don't think that he is public enemy number one to the enemy? You don't think that Satan himself has got a personal army set against Paul? Because if you can take Paul down, you can take them all down. You've seen this happen before. You see this when these great ministers and they've got all these big ministries and all this great influence they have. You see, what happens when they fall? It's not just them that falls, it's everybody else. The whole thing collapses. Because you've just got to take out the head. You don't think that Satan had him as public enemy number one? Paul probably would have had to intercede just to get through breakfast. He says, you think you've got some struggles? Boy, I could tell you some stories. Just for the sake of time, we'll skip straight to chapter 12, verse 1. I love this. He says, I must go on boasting. Notice how the, ch- the tone's completely changed. He's like, I'm, I'm getting into this. And the Corinthians are like, yeah, all right, Paul, all right, you've said enough. No, 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 you asked for this. Now I've got to do it. I'm really enjoying this. This is fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says this. He says, I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, let's be clear, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. And they're like, oh, finally the good stuff. So no man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, who was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about someone like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Now, the irony of this is that he's actually talking about himself. 
Um, this is kind of a way to boast without boasting. So you talk about somebody else, but really it's talking about yourself. And they would have picked that up. So he's saying here, look, you know, there was this moment where I did actually go up to this heavenly realm and hang out with Jesus. And they're like, what? You never told us that before. He's like, yeah, yeah, well, uh, good reason why, because I was kind of sworn to secrecy. But, 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 but you, you, you hung out with Jesus. Yeah, I did, yeah. It's kind of cool, actually. What did you talk about? Nah, I can't talk about it. Come on, give us something. Nah, what happened in heaven stays in heaven. Sorry. Love to tell you, but uh, sworn to secrecy. It says, even if I should choose to boast, I wouldn't be a fool because I'll be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of the surpassingly great revelations. He says, here's the thing. These super apostles of yours, they've got a long CV of all the stuff they've done. It's like a matchup for them, and I could, I could outdo them every day of the week. I mean, Paul's the guy that they used to bring handkerchiefs to, and just his presence around that handkerchief would go and heal the sick. And that's just a day in the life. I mean, raising the dead for Paul was as easy as having a coffee. It's like I can tell you story after story after story. Every one of them will be true. None of it will be boasting. It will just be pointing out the facts of my ministry. And he says, but it wouldn't change a single thing here. Because if you can't see in me the time that I was with you, the love that I had for you, and the service that I gave to you, if, if you couldn't see enough in that to know that I'm an apostle of Christ, then nothing's going to change that. In fact, what would make it worse would be that you'd hear all of these great lists and go, worship Paul. It would defeat the whole purpose. He says, no, you know everything there is to know about me. You had it for 18 months. If that's not enough, I'm sorry, nothing I can do about that. What you see is what you get. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, there's only two things on my CV, just two, the abundance of my weakness and the abundance of his grace. Everything else is rubbish. Father, thank you for your grace. There's nothing that we have done, there's nothing we can do, and there is nothing we will do that wasn't first by your power. In fact, whatever you have done through us or will do through us, you do in spite of us, in spite of our weakness, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our continual failings. Anything that has been achieved or will be achieved through us is only by your grace. We can't boast in it. And if we were to presume to boast, it could only be of the power and the goodness of God that could take a broken vessel like us and do something incredible. 
And so we come back to you this morning with all of our brokenness and say, God, I couldn't see what you could do with this, but you're an incredible God. You're a God of all power. And so we bring you our humility. We bring you our brokenness. We bring you all of our weakness. And say, God, do whatever you can with this for your kingdom and for your purpose. Let our every action, our every word, our every desire be to bring glory to the kingdom of God so that all would see and know that you are God. To the praise of your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 